This is Over the Culture Podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like insurance companies. And I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reaper Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting lyric in podcasting, the troll of trolls, the prince of petty, the macho Mandalorian, Steve G. October 30th, 2022. And over the week, I started a new insurance policy with Progressive. And uh, let me tell you, these insurance companies, these insurance agents are fucking sharks. And I'm ashamed I used to be one. I'm so happy that my license expired. I'd never want to renew that shit. And uh, still, I get offers for jobs at various insurance companies. Like, I don't want to do that shit no more. I don't want anything to do with y'all. Be gone. Bye. Scat. Get now. Get. So when I started with Progressive, actually, before I even started with Progressive, when I sent in an inquiry for a quote, get my free quote from progressive the fucking gates just broke open the levee broke down now here comes state farm now here comes my and pa local insurance company this my and pa local insurance company god damn it and then the text the notifications the updates it was just like 70 of them a minute the calls the texts i just could not God damn, can I set up my new progressive account? Can I set up my new progressive app? Nah, because of these fucking apps and notifications getting in the goddamn way. I, I feel awful that I was this person just hawking people on the phone. Well, I can follow up with a new quote for you. We can save, hey, uh, you remember that conversation we had the day prior? Uh, yeah, I was that fucking piece of shit for about a year or some change closer to two years never again oh my god such a fucking toe like it didn't help i had to get this insurance information uh so the cop outside of my car uh could verify it Uh, but that's a whole nother story that i don't want to get into so yeah i got insurance now and um yeah that's that i really don't fucking like you guys I'm, I'm rolling with flow for now. I'm sorry, General. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, State Farm. Uh, maybe you'll get your time some other time. But for now, we're rolling with flow. I fucking hate all of you, though. Uh, somebody else that I fucking hate are those Penn State, State Penn, Shitney Lions. Oh, would you fuckers just fucking stay in your lane? What, what's wrong with y'all? Now, my Buckeyes, we whooped up on the Penn State Lions, State Penn Shitney Lions. We whooped up on them, but they want to make things hard. They want to be competitive. It's like, no, we we not even studying you. We not we not even supposed to be concerned about you. We got our eyes on that team up north in November. That's who we have marked on the calendar. And it's always the little Penn States, the little Michigan States, uh, the little Indianas here and there. Want to play spoiler? Just tugging on our coattails. Hey, mister, Mr. Buckeye, we want to be a problem, too. We want to be an issue. We, we want to cause some concerns for your for your schedule, your, your yearly schedule. No, motherfucker. 
So we whooped up on those state pinned shitney lions in Happy Valley. Ooh, Happy Valley. We play in Happy Valley where we like to touch on little boys. Yes. I fucking hate you, Penn State. Don't you ever again. The last time Penn State beat us, I was on probation. And never again. I never want to be on probation. I never want to witness a Penn State victory over my Ohio State, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Be gone. On to the next. Something I also don't like is people talking shit that they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Take, for example, Kanye West. Uh... It's been chronicled, not just on my show, but just all over. His life is chronicled in front of our very eyes. Every time, it's like a new episode of a show. What's Kanye gonna say now? Cue the laugh track. He went out on a DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. He had a uh, infamous appearance again on the Drink Champs podcast and... Let's pay attention to those words, Drink Champs. And if you're not familiar, Drink Champs is a podcast hosted by the rapper Noriega, N-O-R-E, and DJ Effin. Um, Throughout the podcast, the guests will drink along with the host. And a lot of times, by the end of the interview... Well, I ain't gonna say a lot of times. There are times when by the end of the interview, the guest is trashed or feeling saucy. So Kanye, once again, he used this platform, this opportunity to voice his opinions and and to better clarify uh, his thoughts and opinions on the Jewish community. And he basically painted Jewish people with one broad stroke. You know, now, if we look close enough, If I look close enough, I can't completely disagree with some of the stuff he says. Yes, for decades, rappers have been making companies, record label companies, rich off of gangster rap, glamorizing the downfall of the black community. Fucking and killing, killing and fucking, smoke some. Intermission break. All right, back to the killing and fucking. And usually, more times than not, the head of those record companies are Jewish. But Kanye approached that all wrong. It's about presentation. It's about how you say it. Communicado. And the fact that he's on Drink Champs, you know, he doesn't have all of his senses together. I don't know how much the man drank, but I know that first go around on Drink Champs, He was getting sloshed. And so when you're talking about something that's kind of a a touchy subject, it's a pretty sensitive subject, Uh, the subject matter, and the fact that he still is a music artist, uh, and a music artist on a label that's more than likely ran by a Jewish person, and he has several ties to different companies that more than likely have Jewish ties as well or owned by someone Jewish the fact that he's done all that he basically just shit away all of those opportunities Adidas gone Balenciaga gone and Adidas they're still selling his design the designs on his shoes without his uh, emblem or whatever the fuck 
and there's nothing he can do about it. Nothing. Be mindful of what you say. I mean, here's the thing too, Kanye. You're a man of means. You got the pull. You can get yourself some writers. Get yourself some writers, sir. When you're talking about something this sensitive, this hot topic of an item, your words need to be used wisely. You can't be freestyling with this shit because that's what I feel he has done. The way he said some things, it could come across crass. And I could see how people of the Jewish community could take offense to it. I, myself personally, I have friends who are Jewish. I love them dearly. Good friends, great friends. And I don't want them being offended. I don't, they don't want me being offended by somebody that's a prominent uh, member in pop culture, a prominent pop culture icon, uh, you know. Be mindful of what you say, people. I wouldn't even do this. And I, I'm no Kanye. I, I'm not a man of his stature. But I know better. I wouldn't use my social media platforms to speak out hatred and vitriol. And, and it, I'm not that kind of person to begin with. If I felt a certain way about a group of people, I have to be mindful and, and be very detailed, word by word, about how I want to get my point across. Somebody else who constantly puts his foot in his mouth is that goddamn Kyrie. Kyrie and Kanye. Kanye and Kyrie. <sighs> so the latest on Kyrie... He's being denounced by his own team, the Brooklyn Nets. So this month, Kyrie posted a video of Alex Jones. Yes, that Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, uh, tinfoil hat fucking asshole who who got sued for damn near a billion dollars by the the victims' families of Sandy Hook. Yeah. He posted a video of Alex Jones onto his Instagram account, and in the video, Jones suggests that there is a new world order enslaving human populations via various methods, including through the release of viruses. In addition to that, he's facing criticism for posting Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, an anti-Semitic black Hebrew Israelite documentary onto his Twitter and Instagram accounts on October And the documentary stated that Jews controlled the African slave trade and controlled the media. At a press conference, Irving defended sharing the documentary, saying, I'm not going to stand down on anything I believe in. I'm only going to get stronger because I'm not alone. I have a whole army around me. Irving made his first tweet espousing black Hebrew Israelite doctrine in March of 2021. In response to that, Joe Sai, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, says, I'm disappointed that Kyrie appears to support a film based on a book full of anti-Semitic disinformation. I want to sit down and make sure he understands this is hurtful to all of us. And as a man of faith, it is wrong to promote hate based on race, ethnicity, or religion. This is bigger than basketball. I agree, Joe Say. I agree. And Kyrie Irving, what we know you for for playing basketball you do that really well never could take that away from you and with that being said why did you feel the need to get on twitter get on instagram and share something that's going to have a lot of kickback way more kickback a lot more shock a lot more pearl clutching 
than anything else. Just what was the point? Even if that is really how you feel, what was the point of exposing that and showing who you are to the world? There might be some NBA players, there might be some athletes, some professional athletes who I admire for their work, for their play, for their skill. They might be the biggest pieces of shit because they do not use their social media to show it. I don't know them, never met them, probably never will. I I won't meet a lot of the athletes that I'm a fan of. And it's probably best. And Kyrie, he's just having a transparent house, a glass house. He's just letting the world see him because the NBA is a worldwide brand. And Kyrie, an all-star, the NBA finals champion. He's highly esteemed amongst his contemporaries. One of the best of all time at what he does. Now, do you want to be remembered for this? When it's all said and done, it's not fair to your legacy. You're too good on the court. And I know you, just like Kanye, didn't finish school. But you're so well informed on all these things. You're so above the fray. You push the envelope. You need to wake the others up. Thank God we have Kyrie Irving to inform the masses. The, The one semester Duke student who played about, what, five games? Yeah. But I digress. Get yourself some writers. Get some PR. Put them to work. Now, on Friday, Burner releases his latest album, From Seed to Sale. And From Seed to Sale is 30 songs, 30 fucking tracks, and it's an hour and 41 minutes. From Seed to Sale is about as long as Godfather 2. Give or take about 20-something minutes. Yeah. But goddammit, out of the 30 tracks, uh, just about all of them were added to the playlist. Uh, He's got features from Cosmo, CJ Washington, Mozzie, and Wiz Khalifa, Seti Hendrix. The track with Seti Hendrix, if it's up, goes hard in the paint. The track with Wiz Khalifa, Spin the Block, (sighs) just as hard. And the track with Mozzie and Cosmo is Conglomerate. And that might be my favorite track on the whole fucking album. This is not an album. It's a fucking movie. From Seed to Cell. And I I talked about Burner last year when he released his last album, Gotti. Um, The Man is Consistent. An MC from San Francisco. He's got that West Coast flavor. He's got that West Coast flow. And if you like any burner, you need to check out From Seed to Sale because it's an instant classic. Also on Friday, Kodak Black releases his latest album, Cutthroat Bill, Volume 1. And that is 19 tracks, 50 minutes and 56 seconds uh, with features from Vincent's and NFL 2WAP, Prince Swanee. There aren't that many features, but here's the thing. I fucks with some Kodak Blacks. I swear I do. And it's just something about him. Uh, he, he's got his own thing, man. He's got his own lane. He's somewhat of a pariah uh, because he's a wild guy. He's out here in these streets. It's just not for play play. It's not just for advertisement. He is the real deal. He is, uh, I don't know. You could say a voice for a certain disenfranchised youth. 
if that makes any sense. But yeah, that's Kodak Black and Cutthroat Bill, Volume 1. I like it. Same same as with Burner. If you like any Kodak Black, check out Cutthroat Bill, Volume 1. And another album that dropped on Friday was West Side Gun's latest album, Hitler Wears Hermes, Volume 10. Oh, man. <sighs> that Griselda gang. Once again. Now, depending on where you look, the album title might be just 10. But on Wikipedia, it's Hitler Wears Hermes 10. And Hitler Wears Hermes 10 is 12 tracks, 49 minutes, 48 seconds, with features from Benny the Butcher, Stove God Cooks, Run the Jewels, uh, Estee Knack, Busta Rhymes, Raekwon, Rome Streets, uh, W.S. Pooty, Black Star, ASAP Rock, DJ Drama, Doughboy. Man, look, I added every fucking track. Uh, is this my favorite of West Side Gun? I can't tell just yet. Because he's got quite a few, quite a few. And I will say this, probably my last, my favorite track is the last song, Red Death. And that's somewhat of a medley of the whole Griselda gang with West Side Gun, Benny the Butcher, Stove God Cooks, Conway the Machine, Armani Caesar, 38 Special, the whole shebang, baby. The whole shebang. And I, I was surprised to see a feature from Black Star. Uh, that track is called Peppas, Goes Hard in the Paint, as well as the track with Buster Rhymes and Raekwon and Ghostface. I can't believe out the fucking Wally B. King. Can't forget that. And it's called Science Class. God damn it. The Run the Jewels track switches on everything. That shit is Ham Sandwich. And I don't give a fuck. Just, if you like hip hop, if you like real good hip hop, authentic shit, check out 10 by West Side Gun. And there's an EP that was released on Friday as well by Sheik Looch called Gorilla Ween 4. Uh, that's only six tracks, 16 minutes and 44 seconds. Haven't had a chance to check that out, but I look at the locks, that whole camp, that army, the way I look at Griselda. Anything they got coming out, to the playlist you go. But all things October 30th. In 1987, the film Baby Boom premiered in theaters. Also in 87, George Michael releases his first solo studio album, Faith, which would win the Grammy Award for Album of the Year and sell 11 million copies in the USA alone. In 1990, Moni Love releases Down to Earth and Big Daddy Kane releases Taste of Chocolate. In 1998, Living Out Loud premiered in theaters. In 2001, Michael Jackson releases Invincible, his first studio album since 1995, and his 10th studio album overall. While the album debuts at number one, its success is limited due to a feud between Jackson and Sony Music Entertainment over the rights to his back catalog, culminating in Jackson accusing the company of racial discrimination. The album would end up being Jackson's last, with later musical efforts being offset by a second series of child molestation allegations in 2003, a trial over said allegations in 2005, and his death on the eve of a comeback tour in June of 2009. R.I.P. to the legend. In 2002, Jam Master Jay is shot dead at a studio in Queens. Run DMC disbands. R.I.P. Also in 2002, 
Warren Zevin, who had recently been diagnosed with cancer, is the sole guest for the entire hour of Late Show with David Letterman. It would be his final public performance, R.I.P. In 2012, Meek Mill releases Dreams and Nightmares, classic. In 2016, WWE airs the pay-per-view Hell in a Cell, 16. In 2020, Buster Rhymes releases Extinction Level Event 2, The Wrath of God, which in my opinion is his best album. But what do I know? I'm just a nigga with a podcast. Also in 2020, Trippy Red releases Pegasus and King Von releases Welcome to Oblock. But what we're really going to get to is that in 1998, the same day Living Out Loud premiered in theaters, American History X. Starring Edward Norton and Edward Furlong premiered in theaters. And I remember watching this movie in class. I remember watching this in my free time. And it's about neo-Nazis. It's about racism. But what's more important is the overarching theme and the message. And it's kind of a character study in that you find how racism starts with a lot of individuals. It starts with the environment, their environment. It starts from home. It starts from family. Racism is taught. It's learned. It's not inane. It's not innate. It is inane, and it's not innate. The movie served its purpose. And it's Edward Norton in one of the best performances. One of the best performances in cinema history. Uh, the, the message itself is bigger than the film. And the fact that Edward Norton, he, he really went method. He had to add 25 pounds of muscle. Just going through a transformation. Going to work and looking convincing. And that's got John Connor. Good old John Connor. Edward Furlong playing his little bro. And the dad from Boy Meets World shown in a light that I wasn't prepared for. Today in sports history, in 1871, the Philadelphia Athletics beat Chicago for the first National Association baseball pennant. In 1919, the Baseball League presidents call for abolishment of the spitball. In 1945, Branch Rickey signs Jackie Robinson to the Montreal Royals. In 1954, the first use of the 24-second shot clock was used in a game between Rochester and Boston. In 1963, Sandy Koufax wins the National League MVP award. In 1973, Tom Seaver becomes the first non-20 game winner to win the Cy Young award. In 1974, the rumble in the jungle happened. Muhammad Ali knocks out George Foreman in the eighth round in Kinshasa, Sair, and regains the world heavyweight boxing title with the famous rope-a-dope tactic. In 1974, California angel Nolan Ryan throws the fastest recorded pitch at 100.9 miles per hour. In 1975, John Busick of the Boston Bruins becomes the seventh NHLer to score 500 goals. In 1988, the New York Jets finally beat the Pittsburgh Steelers for the first time. In 1997, Argentine soccer star Diego Maradona announces his retirement from soccer on his 37th birthday. In 2013, the Boston Red Sox beat the St. Louis Cardinals 6-1 in Game 6 at Fenway Park to win the World Series. The MVP was Boston slugger David Big Poppy Ortiz. 
In 2016, the Oakland Raiders break the single-game record for most penalties in an NFL game, gaining 23 in a win over the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in 2019, the Washington Nationals beat Houston Astros 6-2 in Game 7 at Minute Maid Park in Houston to win the first title in franchise history. The MVP is Washington pitcher Steven Strasburg. And that was my half-fast sports history. Coming up, I'm going to be talking about the film American History X as it premiered in theaters on this day in 1998. We'll be black after these messages. Bought me from the businesses. We need a boycott. I'm showing what the business is. Surrounded by xenophobes with a bleeding nose. They ain't satisfied to my disposition. Decomposed. Alphabet villains got me on speakerphone. Maybe I'm paranoid. I need a leader reefer alone. Just a nervous wreck. Could use a perfect set. Targeted by mass murderers who never earn respect. Different levels of pressure from the society. Anxiety has got me escaping. My sobriety. They hate you, sedate you, but little and berate you. The same minds that play. And Lima's education. Aerosol cans burn the world with a Mr. Spray. Greenhouse gas leave you in a disarray. Gotta see the signs so the wrongs can be righted. We call attention to it so the flame can be ignited. Reaching critical mass. Code red. Watch another man die for a loaf of bread. Atrocities carried out at our behest. Biological warfare to melt the flesh. Cover up the tracks. A genocide. Effective mind control. In the thin disguise. Some refuse to see the truth. They love the lie. Ignorance is bliss. And they wonder why. You can feel the mercury rise. Mercury rise. Mercury rise. Atomic scorch burn the rice. Burn the rice. Burn the rice. State of emergency. Climb. Emergency. Climb. Emergency. Climb. You can feel the mercury rise. Mercury rise. Mercury rise. Stumbling blind through these troubling times. Seldom the punishments, cause I'm fit for the crime. Fat cats feeding their mouths right in the faces of poverty. Lives tossed to the side. Human race is a novelty. Economy spiraling right out of control. Heat attentions abroad, heat attentions at home. Only a matter of time till we achieve annihilation. Unless we hold accountable to criminals and violation. Political families affiliated with Nazis. Successes of failures. The Benghazi. Gotta be certain to keep sight of the nemesis. Congressional sessions full of the whitest supremacists. They label us the enemy of the state. We ain't got shit on the enemies they create. Sealing our fate, nuclear global combustion. Speeding on the crash course to total destruction. Reaching critical mass. Code red. Watch another man die for a loaf of bread. Atrocities carried out at our behest. Biological warfare to melt the flesh. Cover up the tracks. A genocide, effective mind control in the thin disguise. Some refuse to see the truth. They love the lie. Ignorance is bliss, and they wonder why. You can feel the mercury rise, mercury rise, mercury rise. Atomic scorch burn the rice, burn the rice, burn the rice. The state of emergency, climb, emergency, climb, emergency, climb. You can feel the mercury rise, mercury rise, mercury. the bone. American dream, a 
nation built on immigration, trying to keep them out. Pro-life terrorists shoot up a clinic. Pro-death disguises God's vengeance. People dying in the name of religion. Innocent victims of a different opinion. special mention to those no longer with us. Last Tuesday, we lost American director, producer, lyricist, and author Jules Bass. Born on September 16, 1935 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he worked at a New York advertising agency until 1960 and then co-founded a film production company, Videocraft International, later named Rankin Bass Productions, with his friend Arthur Rankin Jr. He joined ASCAP in 1963 and collaborated with Edward Thomas and James Polak at their music firm and as a songwriting team primarily with Maury Laws at Rankin Bass. Bass died on October 25, 2022 at a retirement home in Rye, New York. He was 87 years old. On Friday, we lost American singer, songwriter, and pianist Jerry Lee Lewis. Born on September 29, 1935 in Faraday, Louisiana, he was nicknamed The Killer and he was described as rock and roll's first great wild man and one of the most influential pianists of the 20th century. A pioneer of rock and roll and rockabilly music, Lewis made his first recordings in 1952 at Cosimo Matassa's J&M studio in New Orleans, Louisiana, and early recordings in 1956 at Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee. Crazy Arms sold 300,000 copies in the South, and his 1957 hit, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, shot Lewis to fame worldwide. He followed this with the major hits Great Balls of Fire, Breathless, and High School Confidential. His rock and roll career faltered in the wake of his marriage to Myra Gale Brown, his 13-year-old cousin once removed. His popularity quickly eroded following the scandal, and with few exceptions, such as a cover of Ray Charles' What Did I Say? He did not have much chart success in the early 1960s. His live performances at this time were increasingly wild and energetic. His 1964 live album, Live at the Star Club, Hamburg, is regarded by many music journalists and fans in general as one of the wildest and greatest live rock albums ever. In 1968, Lewis made a transition into country music and had hits with songs such as Another Place, Another Time. This reignited his career, and throughout the late 1960s and 1970s, he regularly topped the country western charts. Throughout his seven-decade career, Lewis had 30 songs reach the top 10 on the Billboard Country and Western chart. His number one country hits included To Make Love Sweeter For You, There Must Be More To Love Than This, would you take another chance on me and me and Bobby McGee? Lewis's successes continued throughout the decades, and he embraced his rock and roll past with songs such as a cover of the Big Bopper's Chantilly Lace and Mac Vickery's Rockin' My Life Away. In the 21st century, Lewis continued to tour around the world and release new albums. His 2006 album, Man Standing, was his best-selling release, with over a million copies worldwide. This was followed by Mean Old Man in 2010, another of his best-selling albums. Lewis had a dozen gold records in rock and country. He won four Grammy Awards, including a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award and two Grammy Hall of Fame Awards. Lewis was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, and his pioneering contribution to the genre was recognized by the Rockabilly Hall of Fame.
He was also a member of the inaugural class inducted into the Memphis Music Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 2022. In 1989, his life was chronicled in the movie Great Balls of Fire, starring Dennis Quaid. In 2003, Rolling Stone listed his box set, All Killer, No Filler, The Anthology, at number 242 on their list of 500 greatest albums of all time. In 2004, they ranked him number 24 on their list of 100 greatest artists of all time. Lewis was the last surviving member of Sun Records' Million Dollar Quartet and the album Class of 55, which also included Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Roy Orbison, and Elvis Presley. Music critic Robert Christgau said of Lewis, his drive, his timing, his offhand vocal power, his unmistakable boogie plus piano, and his absolute confidence in the face of the void make Jerry Lee Lewis the quintessential rock and roller. On February 28, 2019, Lewis had a minor stroke in Memphis. He fully recovered after several canceled appearances. On October 26, 2022, TMZ and other news outlets falsely reported that Lewis had died. Two days later, he died at his home in Nesbitt, Mississippi, following a bout of pneumonia at the age of 87. Also on Friday, we lost American college football coach and athletic director Vince Dooley. Born Vincent Joseph Dooley on September 4, 1932 in Mobile, Alabama, he was the coach and athletic director for the University of Georgia. During his 25-year head coaching career at UGA, Dooley compiled a 201-77-10 record. His teams won six Southeastern Conference titles in the 1980 National Championship. After the 1980 season, Dooley was recognized as college football's coach of the year by several organizations, including the National Sportscasters and Sportswriters Association, whose annual award has since been renamed as the Paul Bear Bryant Award. Dooley died on October 28, 2022, at his home in Athens, Georgia. He was 90 and had recovered from mild symptoms of COVID-19 in the same month as his death. Diego Maradona was an Argentine professional football player and manager. Born Diego Armando Maradona on October 30, 1960 in Lanús, Argentina, he's widely regarded as one of the greatest players in the history of the sport, and he was one of two joint winners of the FIFA Player of the 20th Century Award. Maradona's vision, passing, ball control, and dribbling skills were combined with his small stature, which gave him a low center of gravity, allowing him to maneuver better than most other players. His presence and leadership on the field had a great effect on his team's general performance, while he would often be singled out by the opposition. In addition to his creative abilities, he possessed an eye for goal and was known to be a free-kick specialist. A precocious talent, Maradona was given the nickname El Pib de Oro, the Golden Boy, a name that stuck with him throughout his career. He also had a troubled off-field life and was banned for both 1991 and 1994 for abusing drugs. An advanced playmaker who operated in the classic number 10 position, Maradona was the first player to set the world record transfer fee twice. In 1982 when he transferred to Barcelona for 5 million pounds and in 1984 when he moved to Napoli for a fee of 6.9 million pounds. He played for Argentinos Juniors, Boca Juniors, Barcelona, Napoli, Sevilla, and Newell's Old Boys during his club career, and is most famous for his time at Napoli, where he won numerous accolades. 
In his international career with Argentina, he earned 91 caps and scored 34 goals. Maradona played in four FIFA World Cups, including the 1986 World Cup in Mexico, where he captained Argentina and led them to victory over West Germany in the final and won the Golden Ball as the tournament's best player. In the 1986 World Cup quarterfinal, he scored both goals in a 2-1 victory over England that entered football history for two different reasons. The first goal was an unpenalized handling foul, known as the Hand of God, while the second goal followed a 60-meter dribble past five England players, voted Goal of the Century by FIFA.com voters in 2002. Maradona became the coach of Argentina's national football team in November of 2008. He was in charge of the team at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa before leaving at the end of the tournament. He then coached Dubai-based club Al Wasi in the UAE Pro League for the 2011-2012 season. In 2017, Maradona became the coach of Fajara before leaving at the end of the season. In May 2018, Maradona was announced as the new chairman of Belarusian club Dynamo Brest. He arrived in Brest and was presented by the club to start his duties in July. From September 2018 to June 2019, Maradona was coach of Mexican club Dorados. He was the coach of Argentine Primera Division club Gimnasia de la Plata from September 2019 until his death. On November 2, 2020, Maradona was admitted to a hospital in La Plata, supposedly for psychological reasons. A representative of the ex-footballer said his condition was not serious. A day later, he underwent emergency brain surgery to treat a subdural hematoma. He was released on November 12th after successful surgery and was supervised by doctors as an outpatient. On November 25th, at the age of 60, Maradona suffered cardiac arrest and died in his sleep at his home on Diclacuan, Buenos Aires province, Argentina. He was age 60 at the time of his death. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1998, American History X premiered in theaters. American History X is an American crime drama film directed by Tony Kay and written by David McKenna. The film stars Edward Norton and Edward Furlong as two brothers from Los Angeles who are involved in the white power skinhead and neo-Nazi movements. The older brother, Norton, serves three years in prison for voluntary manslaughter and is rehabilitated during this time. It then tries to prevent his brother, Furlong, from being indoctrinated further. The supporting cast includes Fazara Balk, Stacey Keach, Elliot Gold, Avery Brooks, Ethan Supley, and Beverly D'Angelo. McKenna wrote the script based on his own childhood and experiences of growing up in San Diego. He sold the script to New Line Cinema, which was impressed by the writing. American History X was Kay's first directorial role in her feature film. Budgeted at $20 million, filming took place in 1997. Before the film's release, Kay and the film studio were in disagreements about the final cut of the film. The final version was longer than Kay intended, which resulted in him publicly disowning the film, thus negatively affecting his directing career. Distributed by New Line Cinema, the film was released in the United States on October 30, 1998, grossing $23.9 million against a $20 million budget. American History X was critically praised, with Norton and Furlong's performances and the film's message drawing acclaim.
Norton received an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. The film has also been used for educational purposes in the United States and in other countries. A follow-up, African History Y, with Kay returning as director and starring Jaiman Hansu, was in active development as of 2020. High school student Danny Vineyard antagonizes his Jewish history teacher Murray by choosing to write a civil rights essay on Mein Kampf. African-American principal and outreach worker Dr. Bob Sweeney tells Danny that he will study history through current events or be expelled, calling their class American History X. Danny's first assignment is a paper on his older brother Derek, a past student of Sweeney's and former neo-Nazi leader released from prison that day. Years earlier, Danny and Derek's father, a fireman, was shot and killed by a black drug dealer while putting out a fire at their home. Immediately after his death, Derek erupts in a racist tirade in a televised interview. High-profile white supremacist Cameron Alexander becomes Derek's mentor and they form their own violent white supremacist gang called the Disciples of Christ in Venice Beach. A skilled basketball player, Derek is dragged into a game against several crips, winning control of the local courts. Derek organizes an attack on a supermarket employing illegal Mexican immigrants. Derek's mother Doris invites Murray, her boyfriend, for dinner, where an argument about Rodney King and the 1992 Los Angeles riots occurs. Derek assaults his sister Davina and openly berates Murray, and Doris tells Derek to leave home. That night, the same group of Crips that Derek had beaten in the basketball game earlier attempt to steal his truck. When Danny alerts Derek to the crime, Derek guns down two of the men, killing one and wounding another, before curb stomping the wounded man, much to Danny's horror. He is arrested and sentenced to three years in the California Institution for Men for voluntary manslaughter. In prison, Derek joins the Aryan Brotherhood and befriends a black inmate named Lamont. Derek becomes disgusted and disillusioned by prison gang politics. He believes in the ideology, but disapproves of the gang's dealings with non-white gangs and involvement in drug dealing, thinking that the members are only using the philosophy of white supremacy out of convenience. He loses his belief further when his friends in the DOC never visit him in prison. He ultimately abandons the Aryan Brotherhood, who beat and rape him in the shower in retaliation. Derek is visited in the hospital wing by Sweeney, with whom he pleads for help to get out of prison, promising to leave town and never come back. Sweeney rebukes Derek and reveals his own racist past, much to Derek's shock, and warns that Danny has become involved with the DOC to follow in his footsteps, which upsets Derek further. After recovering and leaving the hospital wing, Derek ignores the Aryan Brotherhood while Lamont warns that he may be targeted by African-American gangs now that he is no longer under the Aryan Brotherhood's protection. An attack never comes, and Derek spends the remainder of his sentence alone. When he is released, Derek thanks Lamont, whom he realizes intervene on his behalf. Returning home, Derek finds Danny emulating him, sporting a DOC tattoo, and becoming a skinhead. Derek tries to persuade him to leave the gang, but Danny feels betrayed. Derek's best friend Seth, also a DOC member, frequently disrespects Derek's mother and sister while grooming Danny for the gang. Seth and Danny are closely controlled by Cameron. During a party at DOC's compound, Derek confronts Cameron and calls him out for using him only to abandon him for three years, declaring his departure from the gang and refusal to allow them to use Danny the same way. 
He brutally beats Cameron when the man mocks him. Seth and the others, including Derek's ex-girlfriend Stacy, turn against Derek. Seth holds Derek at gunpoint, but Derek easily disarms him and holds everyone at gunpoint before fleeing with his brother. Afterwards, Derek tells Danny about his experience in prison, which seems to prompt a change in Danny. The pair return home and remove hateful posters from their shared bedroom. The next morning, Danny completes his paper, reflecting on his reasons for adopting white supremacist values and their flaws. Derek walks Danny to school, stopping at a diner for breakfast. Sweeney and a police officer inform Derek that Seth and Cameron were attacked the night before and are in an intensive care unit. Derek denies having any knowledge or involvement and reluctantly agrees to inspect the people he denounced. In the boys' bathroom, Danny is shot dead by a black student that he had confronted the day before. Derek runs to the school and finding Danny's body mournfully cradles him while blaming himself for influencing Danny's views and actions which led to it. In a voiceover, Danny reads the final lines of his paper for Dr. Sweeney, quoting the final stanza of Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address. Screenwriter David McKenna wrote the screenplay for American History X and sold the rights to New Line Cinema when he was 26. The inspiration for the story came from the punk rock scene of McKenna's childhood, where he often witnessed violent behavior. I saw a lot of bigotry growing up, and it made me think about writing something about the world of hate mongers. The point I tried to make in the script is that a person is not born a racist. It is learned through the environment and the people that surround you. The question that intrigued me is, why do people hate, and how does one go about changing that? My premise was that hate starts in the family. In order to make the characters as realistic as possible, McKenna interviewed and observed the behavior of skinheads during the writing process. He said, I had seen documentaries that just didn't ring true to me, and I wanted to write an accurate portrayal of how good kids from good families can get so terribly lost. Producer John Morrissey, who read the script three years prior, was impressed by the script's intense characters and dialogue. Michael DeLuca, then production president of New Line Cinema, said, I was intrigued by its intensity, conviction, and brutal honesty. There was a brilliant character study woven into the screenplay, and I knew we had something special if we did it correctly. In 1996, the producers first approached Dennis Hopper to direct the film. Hopper turned down the offer, and Tony Kay was then approached to direct. Kay, who had been DeLuca's preferred choice from the beginning, accepted and made his directorial debut in a feature film on American History X. He took the contract to a synagogue. I signed it in front of the rabbi. I thought it would make it good, Kay said. After the film was released, DeLuca stated, it's everything I had hoped for. The performances are explosive and frightening, and the film dramatically demonstrates both the subtle and overt roots of racism, while also showing the possibility for redemption. Joaquin Phoenix was offered the role of Derek Vineyard, but he refused the part. After holding casting calls, Kay was unable to find a suitable actor for the lead role, but casting director Valerie McCaffrey suggested Edward Norton. Kay initially objected, feeling that Norton lacked the weight or presence, but he eventually conceded. According to executive producer Steve Tisch, Norton's passion for the project was contagious, and he had agreed to a pay cut of more than $500,000 from his usual $1 million fee to be cast in the lead. McCaffrey also cast Edward Furlong for the role of Danny Vineyard. To prepare for the role, Norton increased his calorie intake and spent hours in the gym to gain 25 pounds of muscle. K 
McKay served as cinematographer and camera operator and would often silently walk around the set scouting for camera angles or visuals. During filming, Kay established a casual environment for the cast and crew. He welcomed visitors on set, including singer Courtney Love, Norton's girlfriend at the time, and British historian Josh Richardson. Kay would arrive for work in a Lincoln town car with a chauffeur and a license plate that read Jewish. He carried four cell phones and a fax machine, and during the Passover holidays, Kay had boxes of matzah delivered to the set. He also discovered at the time a newsletter published by a British political group, the National Front, which said he was a prominent Jew who supposedly controlled Britain's media. Both Furlong and Ethan Supley found taking on their roles with hateful views to be uncomfortable. Furlong said it's pretty intense having to say this incredibly hateful stuff. The actors had white power tattoos painted on their arms, which Supley forgot to remove one day after filming and was confronted by a man in a convenience store. Norton recalls doing that film created the strangest distortion of perception on me, the degree to which that film and the magic of camera and art and black and white photography made a lot of people think that I was a larger and tougher person than I am. The flashback scenes were edited to be in black and white, whereas the present day scenes were edited to be in color. Rotten Tomatoes website reads, American History X doesn't contend with its subject matter as fully as it could, but Edward Norton's performance gives this hard-hitting drama crucial weight. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave American History X four out of four stars, describing it as a shockingly powerful screed against racism that also manages to be so well-performed and directed that it is entertaining as well, adding it was also effective at demonstrating how hate is taught from one generation to another. He said Norton was an immediate frontrunner for an Academy Award. Todd McCarthy, writing for Variety, gave the film a positive review, stating this jolting, superbly acted film will draw serious-minded upscale viewers interested in cutting-edge fare. He particularly praised Norton's performance, saying his Derek mesmerizes even as he repels, and the actor fully exposes the human being behind the tough poses and attitudinizing. Film critic Roger Ebert gave the film 3 out of 4 stars, but was critical of the underdeveloped areas, stating the movie never convincingly charts Derek's path to race hatred. Ebert concluded, This is a good and powerful film. If I am dissatisfied, it is because it contains the promise of being more than it is. Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly called the film riveting and praised the narrative structure despite thinness of the script. In 1999, Amnesty International USA used American History X for an educational campaign, screening the film in colleges and in nationwide events for raising awareness on human rights. Zara Toussaint of Amnesty International in France organized screenings in her country, followed by debates. The reactions of the film were varied. Some people thought that this was only an extreme case, that this kind of group was very marginal, and that there could be no equivalent in France, she said. In response to the French screening, Sebastian Omer of Le Humanity wrote, Police violence, the Rodney King affair, unsanitary prisons, ill treatment, rejection of asylum seekers, the United States has still not assimilated what human rights, freedom, equality meant. In September of 99, Empire Magazine ranked the film 311 in a list of 500 greatest movies of all time. In 2008, Norton's performance was ranked by Total Film as the 72nd greatest film performance of all time. Although director Kay did not watch the film until 2007, he has acknowledged that it has become quite a little classic in its own befuddled way.
In 2012, he said that he was very proud of what we all achieved. For the 20th anniversary of the film, Christopher Hooten, writing for The Independent, opined that the film feels more essential now than it ever has. Clayton Schuster of Vice drew comparisons between the film and real-life atrocities, the murders of nine African Americans in a Charleston church in 2015, a far-right march in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, and a year later, a mass shooting in a Pittsburgh synagogue. He argues that these violent acts are no different to the hate represented in the film, adding white supremacy has existed for centuries. It's lurked on the fringes of American power since the birth of this nation. He added, there is at least one notable difference. The movie portrays skinheads as visually different. They're suited up in boots with red laces, heads gleaming from a fresh shave and tatted with Nazi insignia and racist slogans. White supremacists today have largely adopted a policy of fitting into society rather than standing out. Writing for Esquire magazine in 2018, Justin Kirkland stated that he believed that perhaps the reason that American History X still feels so relevant two decades after its release is because we haven't done enough for it not to be. I'm afraid we're going to be writing about American History X forever. I'm afraid of what will happen if we don't. Happy anniversary, American History X. Your message was bigger than the film itself. In today's birthdays for October 30th, turning 26 today is American basketball player Devin Booker. Happy 29th birthday to American football player Marcus Mariota. Happy 38th birthday to American model and actress Eva Marcel. American football player Trent Edwards turns 39. American rapper Stali turns 40 years old today. American singer, songwriter, and actor Matthew Morrison turns 44. American basketball player Maurice Taylor turns 46. Canadian wrestler and actor, the rated R superstar, Edge turns 49. American actress Nia Long turns 52 today. Canadian rapper and reggae singer-songwriter Snow turns 53. English singer, songwriter, guitarist, and actor of the band Bush, Gavin Rossdale is 57 today. American actor and producer Michael Beach turns 59. American comedian and television host Larry Wilmore turns 61. American actress and singer Charnel Brown turns 62 today. American actor, game show host, and producer Kevin Pollack turns 65. American singer, songwriter, and producer of the legendary group The Temptations, Otis Williams, turns 81 today. And a very special happy 86th birthday to American football player and coach Dick Vermeil. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. As always, check out my other show, Happened in the 90s with my buddy Matt G, every Thursday. Crushgasm with Kendra on Wednesdays. B3F Podcast with Joey and Steve. And don't worry, be movie with Amanda and Wade. Y'all be cool now, and happy Halloween. Peace. <laughs>